and welcome back to another episode of Bad Bad News. I hope you enjoy this one. Crisis after crisis after crisis. That's the best way to put what's been going on over the past several weeks in the U.S. We're experiencing a vaccine shortage in the midst of a pandemic with different variants now surfacing. Questions like, will COVID be something that will never go away? It's too early to tell is what many epidemiologists have stated. All that aside, though, it's been interesting for me to see two very different worlds, one in where investors believe wholeheartedly that this market high will continue, and another world where everyday working Americans are tired and losing hope. The war on Wall Street that we talked about last time is something we need to draw our attentions to more. Compared to other countries, Americans are ranked among the most overworked compared to other developed nations. At some point, this does take a toll on our society. So now, put this together with an energy crisis that's affecting the southern United States. Many states experiencing rolling blackouts because of a disastrous winter storm. Parts of Texas reaching temperatures colder than Alaska. This is an issue that we need to examine because it has lasting economic effects. But before we dive into that, let's look at a commercial real estate update. And later, we'll take a look at what's going on in Europe. For those of you familiar with this podcast, you're aware that whenever I want to do a real estate update on the commercial real estate sectors, I use REIT data for a number of reasons. See, REIT returns is the most easily available data to analyze the current state of the commercial real estate market. So I'd like to provide a quick refresher for those of you who have forgotten about what commercial real estate and REITs are, and for those of you who are new to this podcast. So essentially, commercial real estate is made up of retail, office, industrial, multifamily, as well as mixed-use real estate. REITs, or real estate investment trusts, are companies that own, manage, and or finance income-producing properties. These companies have shares that are publicly traded so investors can buy these and receive a dividend without having to actually buy physical property. There are certain requirements to become a REIT. Two important criteria include investing at least 75% of total assets into real estate, U.S. treasuries, or cash, as well as paying a minimum of 90% of taxable income through shareholder dividends every year. There are also three types of REITs, equity, mortgage, and a hybrid of both. NAREIT is the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, and the importance of NAREIT is that it publicly provides REIT performance data. So now that we've gotten the basics down, let's take a look at the latest NAREIT returns report. When we look at the report, it's pretty easy to see that based on the one-year compound annual total returns, timber REITs seem to be doing the best, with a one-year annual return of 21.79%. Now you may be wondering, timber? What's a timber REIT? Well, according to the U.S. Forest Service, a timber REIT is a REIT in which more than 50% of its asset value is real property in the trade or business of producing timber. See, with everything we've experienced during the pandemic, the rising housing demand and shortened supply of homes, it makes sense that lumber prices have skyrocketed. But it's not only new construction and housing that's caused prices to increase, but also many people's desire to remodel their homes in the meantime. All of this has taken a toll on raw materials, which in the end drives up home prices as well. If we take a look at lumber prices, we'll see that they've increased to unprecedented levels. 
$994.90 per 1,000 board feet. It's crazy to think about, but these prices are not sustainable. And when the demand for housing decreases and the remodels get done, we'll have lumber and timber prices go back to a more normal and sustainable level. Now, if we turn our attention back to the NAREIT returns report, we'd see that the rest of the positive one-year returns are normal, as it was predicted and seen that there was a rise in demand for these sectors, data centers, industrial, self-storage, and single-family homes. I foresee sustained positive returns for data centers, industrial, and self-storage. I do believe that timber and single-family homes will remain positive for some time, but at a decreasing rate. But let's not lose sight that out of the 18 sectors, only five of them are in positive territory for the one-year compound annual returns rate. This is big. Granted, we knew office, retail, apartments, lodging, and resorts were going to get hit. I was not expecting to see that big of a decrease in healthcare. Though I guess it makes some sense when you see how much of the healthcare industry is moving to virtual visits when possible. This then translates to less actual square footage needed in the healthcare industry. In case you haven't heard any news about Texas, well, basically their power grid was on the verge of collapse due to a polar vortex that hit them several times last week. But before we dive into what happened, I think it's best to first understand Texas's energy infrastructure. Now, in case you didn't know, there are three different power grids in the contiguous United States. There's the Western Interconnection, the Eastern Interconnection, and then the Texas Interconnection. I'll note that the Texas Interconnection doesn't encompass all of Texas, but it does for the majority of Texas. The city of El Paso is on a different grid, along with the Upper Panhandle and a part of East Texas. I'll also note that Texas produces more energy than any other state in the U.S. So you may be wondering, why does Texas have their own power grid? I wondered the same thing. It essentially comes down to the Federal Power Act in 1935. This law gave authority to the federal government to regulate power companies that were involved in interstate commerce. At the time, and ever since then, Texas power companies have agreed to not sell power outside of the state. So in order to get away from federal regulations, Texas decided to have its own power grid. There have been times in history when Texas has given some of its power to other states, but was able to bypass federal regulations, and even then, it's mostly been in emergency situations. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERGOT, oversees and manages the power within the Texas interconnection. So, Texas won't sell power to other states, but can other states sell power to Texas? The short answer is no. See, because Texas's power grid is made up of many transmission lines within the state, it lacks major transmission lines to connect to another power grid. That's why there's a western and eastern interconnection to help states in situations like this be able to access power from another state. Now, don't get me wrong. I admire that Texas can provide energy for itself. But it's almost like they'd never thought something like this could happen that their energy supply wouldn't be able to keep up with the energy demand in sub-freezing temperatures for a sustained period of time. Of course, no one thought that this could happen in Texas, but it has. Climate change is real, with new types of weather patterns occurring in different places. Now, before I go on, I want to encourage everyone to set aside their politics when we assess this issue. 
We've divided the U.S. into blue states versus red states, but seem to be forgetting that we are the United States. Our fellow Americans are quite literally suffering in Texas because the people in charge didn't think something of this magnitude could happen. So now that we understand the history of Texas's power system, I think we can now go and question what happened that led them to this point. See, a polar vortex from the Arctic that jet streams usually encapsulate to just the Arctic region escaped and basically traveled to southern states. This polar vortex brought massive amounts of snow and sub-freezing temperatures to many areas in Texas. Well, first of all, Texas does not normally experience these kinds of temperatures, and at one point, parts of Texas were colder than Alaska. But in any case, just know that it got very cold in Texas. Now, because it got very cold, Texans put a higher demand on electricity since they needed to stay warm. Unfortunately, due to the lack of insulation, the natural gas lines became depressurized. Basically, it couldn't move inside of the pipe. So their number one electricity source took a major hit because of the below freezing temperatures. Now you may be asking, what about all their other energy sources? I've been seeing numerous media outlets reporting that this lack of energy supply was caused by the use of green renewable energy. I can tell you that this is false. According to ERCOT, they noted the following. Natural gas makes up 47.4% of the total electricity generation, then coal with 20.3%, then wind energy with 20%, then nuclear with 10.8%, and solar with 1.1%. Okay, so we understand why the natural gas supply plummeted, but let's now take a look at the other fuel types. Coal plants require water to stay online, but because a lot of the water froze, they were not able to produce any coal. Wind turbines were down because none of the turbine blades were equipped with antifreeze or other kinds of heating elements. Nuclear power plants were also down because the cooling ponds they needed froze and the pipes that move the water did not have any kind of insulation. Solar only produces 1.1% of the total electricity, so even if it was able to produce some energy, it wasn't going to be enough. This created a total and complete crisis. On top of all of this, there is a very limited energy storage capacity for renewable energy sources. Those blaming renewable energy for this crisis need to look at the statistics I just went over and put their politics aside. Again, the majority of Texas's energy is from fossil fuel sources. The failure isn't from the sources though, it's from something else. The biggest mistake that's clear to me in all of this is just how dependent Texas was on water not freezing and not doing anything to winterize or at least insulate their pipes. Not enough money was put aside to prepare for a scenario like this. Granted, a scenario like this wasn't in many models, but it's happened and will now have lasting implications. See, if Texas wanted to be completely energy independent, they're going to have to be a lot more strategic in their planning. With independence comes a lot of responsibility. If only the pipes were more insulated, I wonder how much of a difference that would have made to avert this level of crisis. Basic economic principles tell us that when there is an excess demand and a shortage in the supply, prices of goods will tend to skyrocket. What we witnessed early last week in Texas was absolutely unprecedented, but could have easily come out of a textbook. ERCOT had put in place a price cap on wholesale energy of $9,000 per megawatt hour. 
Texas hit this price cap during the latest deep freeze. Let me emphasize this. The price of wholesale electricity rose by 10,000%, from an average of $25 to $50 per megawatt hour to $9,000 per megawatt hour. This was insane. Now, many think that the power companies made a killing, but the reality is that yes, for those power generators that were actually able to sell their energy, they made a lot of money. But for those who couldn't, they unfortunately lost a lot. See, retail electricity providers that were unable to meet their commitment were being forced to buy at the very high spot price of $8,000 to $9,000 per megawatt hour and were only able to sell power for a tenth of the cost. But those that are truly suffering are not limited to companies. Like in every American story, the average everyday American suffers. But before we get into the implications of the crisis, I want to look at how this energy crisis has impacted the agriculture sector. China recently ordered one of its largest amounts of corn and soybean from the U.S. Unfortunately, because of the Arctic freeze, it's become nearly impossible to get shipment to our Pacific Northwest ports. Additionally, many soybean processing plants have had to slow down production because of the extremely high energy costs. But this crisis didn't only affect our crops. It's also affecting meat processing plants as well. See, Tyson Foods was among many meat producers that were forced to shut their plants in Texas. According to Bloomberg, prices for hard red winter wheat delivered in May rallied as much as 3.7% to $6.45 a bushel on Tuesday. Corn for May delivery climbed as much as 2.5%, while soybeans for May delivery rose as much as 1.6%. Ethanol and cattle prices also jumped. This is having effects much wider and greater than any of us would have imagined a winter storm in Texas would have caused. And this unfortunately doesn't just affect the farmers and meat producers in Texas, it's stretched to many other states as well. See, Sanderson Farms, the U.S.'s third largest chicken producer, said the winter storm is affecting operations in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. As many as 200 broiler houses in Texas lacked power Tuesday morning, and four were destroyed in Mississippi as snow collapsed roofs. I will mention that I only foresee agriculture commodity prices rising in the short term due to the shock, but in the long term, I foresee inflation eventually catching up on food prices. What does this all mean? Why did I decide to talk about this topic? Because this stretches far beyond just Texas. Unfortunately, the U.S.'s infrastructure is deteriorating. The U.S. once prided itself on continuously using the most sophisticated technologies, but when you don't maintain and keep things in running order, they will eventually fail. And yes, this was a rare winter storm, but that's still not enough of an excuse, at least for me, to why ERCOT couldn't have implemented some kind of regulation into just insulating pipes from freezing. The worst part I see from all of this was also the lack of regulation in construction. Water pipes across Texas bursted in homes. Many homes have been flooded because of this. What I see here is just a lack of vision and eyes solely focused on generating money. The best way to get this point across is through an example, and I use real estate. Now, I've seen many mom and pop type landlords that weren't educated in real estate and what it truly entails. They would simply take a tenant's check every month and cash it, nothing more. I mean, yes, if the tenant had this problem or that problem, mostly minor problems, they'd fix it. But then when something big happens, let's say the roof that's been on the building for 30 plus years is causing a lot of roof leaks, 
they didn't put any money aside from their tenant's check to put back into the building. And now they can't replace the roof. They can only keep patching it. Okay, now it comes time to sell. These landlords are upset that the price of their building is worth so low. Well, when you don't put the money back into the asset to keep up with maintenance, it's going to lose value and it's going to cause many people headaches. The same is true for our infrastructure. But unfortunately, now our infrastructure problem doesn't have a simple fix. We haven't put much, if anything, aside for big infrastructural changes within the US. I mean, look at our roads. Look at how you could be paying for extremely fast internet, but the connecting wire that goes into your house is still copper, which ends up slowing it down anyway. Look at our modes of transportation compared to Europe and Asia. We're crippling with debt in the US, paying out massive amounts of money to foreign countries and to domestic corporations. But when it comes to taking care of our people and infrastructure, it seems like we don't have the time nor money for it. The situation will unfortunately continue to deteriorate unless we can do something about it. I'm not calling on regulation, but a shift in ideology. A shift from trying to make an extra buck to instead investing part of the profit back into our country. This will help spur economic growth and will even act as an insurance to help with our next crisis. The sad reality is that we're still in the middle of a pandemic with high unemployment rates, but now our very own in the South are suffering from bitter cold temperatures and the loss of power to warm themselves. I've heard firsthand stories from friends trying to keep their newborns warm when outside was negative two degrees Fahrenheit. They had no electricity and had to close themselves off to one room and hope that everyone would stay warm enough. This is something I thought I'd never see in my own backyard. People's homes are flooded. My biggest question is, will their home insurance policies cover the loss? It's not flooding caused by a hurricane or what they're used to, but flooding caused by pipes bursting because no one thought of insulating pipes. There are also people without running water. It's just so hard for me to grapple with the reality in front of us. Texas officials are at a loss of what to do at the moment. During the peak of it all, there were reports of hospitals with no running water and no heat. Granted, Puerto Rico went through something similar due to a massive hurricane, but they didn't have to deal with the crazy low temperatures. Though I will say that it took one year for them to recover their power grid. But it's still insanity to me. Many grocery stores across Texas have limited the amount of items people can purchase in order to keep people from hoarding. Many other grocery stores have outright closed, including 500 Walmart stores across the region. Additionally, millions of Texans are under a boil notice since many water treatment plants lost power, and that led to the creation of environments where bacteria could breed. I suspect the boil notice will continue for some time. And as of last Friday, 14.4 million Texans were affected by water outages. Now, I want to turn our attention to the economic costs. What are some of the lasting effects this will have on our oil supply, and thus oil prices? Sure, many are now with power again, and a lot of the ice is melting. But where does that leave everything else? Many are comparing this crisis to the California power crisis of 2000 and 2001. But the main difference there was that California had the ability to import energy from neighboring states. But because of Texas's closed system, that can't be a possibility this time. As of last Friday, roughly 40% of the nation's crude production was offline. It's strange to see Brent crude trading in the $60 range when not even a year ago we saw it trading at negative prices. 
it's mind-boggling just how tumultuous 2020 and 2021 are turning out to be. But these problems are not only affecting us domestically. Crude markets in Europe are rallying as traders replace lost U.S. exports. OPEC and its allies must decide how much longer they keep millions of barrels of their supply off the market. OPEC's decision will have a major effect on oil and gas prices in the coming months. The biggest problem is we still don't know how badly the oil refineries might have been affected. Citigroup says it expects a production loss of 16 million barrels through early March, but some traders' estimates are now almost double that. Many oil refineries are unsure of how much damage they might be facing with needing energy to restart the pumps, but also pumps bursting due to frozen water. To make matters worse, many companies laid off large portions of their workforce due to demand falling last year because of COVID. Executive VP of Operations at Basic Energy Services, Jim Newman, was pretty pessimistic on when full restoration would come. He said the following, I would say it will take weeks. A lot will unfold as we assess the damage as we thaw out. To top off all of this, AccuWeather has estimated the cost of damage and economic loss to be roughly $50 billion. I think we will see that cost rise substantially. If only we had put money back into the infrastructure system, we the taxpayers wouldn't have to be spending all of this unnecessary money. So with all of the chaos happening here in the States, You might be wondering, are we the only ones experiencing this? The short answer is no. Europe is also facing quite a lot of chaos due to the pandemic and many of the economic effects of it. I have an update on Italy and what has transpired there since our last episode. And we'll also have a chance to see how England is doing through it all. In our last episode, we talked about both the political and economic crisis Italy is currently enduring. Since our last episode, Mario Draghi has accepted the position of prime minister. Though, there were many Italian politicians against this move as they wanted the people to decide on their next prime minister. I think it was absolutely imperative that they had someone responsible enough to distribute the 200 billion euros that were coming in from the EU. I hope the best for Italy, and I truly hope that Draghi will do what's best for Italy and its economy. England has suffered quite a bit for a number of reasons beyond the pandemic, including Brexit. If we take a look at recent GDP numbers out of England, we see just how bad things have gotten economically. According to the Office for National Statistics, Britain's gross domestic product shrank by 7.8% year-on-year in the fourth quarter of 2020, following a revised 8.7% contraction in the previous three-month period and compared with market expectations of an 8.1% fall, a preliminary estimate showed. Household consumption dropped 8.4% versus negative 8.6% in the third quarter, and fixed investment fell 3.5% versus negative 7% in the third quarter. At the same time, net external demand contributed negatively to the GDP as exports slumped 23.5% and imports declined at a softer 8.9%. Public investment, however, grew 0.5%, following three consecutive periods of contraction. Over the year 2020 as a whole, GDP contracted by 9.9%, the largest annual fall on record. 
This is a big blow for England. The timing of everything really makes things worse. Brexit was already forecasted to bring some economic downfalls, but the pandemic has only exacerbated things. Another key piece of bad news for England is that Amsterdam has now overtaken London as the largest shared trading hub. To add to this, many Londoners that work in finance are leaving the city to relocate to other hubs such as Amsterdam. It's become obvious that there aren't many finance jobs left in London because it's not the hub it once was. Many financial executives in London are extremely pessimistic on what's to come because they are not only competing with European markets now, but investors may find the liquidity of the US and Asian markets more desirable than European financial markets. This could truly be a devastating blow to England if they don't come up with a way to boost their economy soon. I dedicate my time to talking about problems because I want us to find solutions. I don't see the point in politicizing events, especially economic disasters. Sure, poor governance and corruption can be the culprits, but it doesn't need to be separated into blue versus red. This phenomenon of corruption and poor governance is not something that exists in only red states or only blue states. It exists in every state and in many levels of our system. That's a pretty undeniable fact. No state is perfect and no government is perfect. But that's why we need to hold those in power accountable for actions they've taken. America, we can do better than this. This isn't what our Southern neighbors deserve. Puerto Rico didn't deserve what they had to endure as well. But because it's now within the contiguous US, I think it's giving us a bigger picture of our failures. We can do better. Let's not normalize what we're witnessing. We need to make that commitment to ourselves that we'll do better for future generations. People lining up at grocery stores and only being allowed 15 items at checkout? Homes caving in because of pipes bursting? People dying because they can't keep warm? And grocery stores running out of water and hoping for a new shipment to come in over the weekend should never be something Americans should experience. Yet here we are. Let's do better. Till next time.